Are you that weirdo that blew off the latest party to stay home and watch Forensic Files? Then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. (laughs) All right, and we are back again next episode, and we are covering a true crime topic this week. We're covering, wait for it arsonists or better known as fire gives me boners <laughs> are we gonna introduce ourselves this week or nah oh yes I'm sorry uh yes i'm cassie and fires do not give me a boner i'm tiffany and verdict is still out <laughs> <laughs> and if you didn't hear by the intro this is happy hour gets weird we're a true crime and paranormal podcast we have a couple drinks and talk about weird shit so before we get into our arsonists, arsons this week, mm-hmm. let's talk about our cocktail. This week we are drinking something that I like to call, aren't you glad there's vodka? I love it. And yes, I am glad. Um, it is kind of a throwback when it comes to flavor profile. It's very creamsicle-ish. Which, that was my favorite uh, frozen treat when I was a kid. From the ice cream truck? Yes. Or even from, like, there was a little store when I was in kindergarten. I lived in Portland. And there was a mm-hmm. little store that me and my dad would walk to and I would get those as a little treat. So mm. so it's uh, pretty much like what you would think. It's vanilla vodka or you can use um, whipped cream vodka, whatever you happen to have. And then I'm using clementine juice. And a little egg white. Uh, it's really good. And we will post our recipe and pictures, as always, on our Instagram. Yes. And do you know that Costco sells cutie juice by the gallon? By the gallon? They sell it in a two-pack, two gallons. Mm-hmm. My kids love it. They love cutie juice. I don't have a Costco here, and everyone always talks about how much better Costco is than Sam's, and it's kind of irritating. Well, they're both the same. I think they have, uh, you know, I know I have friends that are Team Costco and friends that are Team Sam's. I don't know anybody that's Team Sam's. If you tell a Costco (laughs) lover that Sam's is just as good, they will throat punch you. They're fucking, like, serious about it. I'm neutral. Big. I'm big box neutral. Okay. (laughs) I just, whoever has the cutie juice is where I'm buying a membership. You won't punch somebody in the face if they say that they like one more than the other? absolutely not i have no dog in that fight (laughs) i've been saying i have no dog in that fight way too much lately i like it i actually want a picture i want a shirt that says no dog in that fight with maybe dogs and boxing gloves and then there you're like wait you have dogs in a fight they're fighting right there well but i is that perpetuating dog fighting no it's not that kind of dog fighting it's where they each wear small silky shorts and boxing gloves and they're in a ring and then there's dogs in bikinis that come out with the signs that say like five minutes left or i don't i don't know what those uh okay say. so it's or they they hold up like this this round sponsored by milk bone exactly exactly <laughs> oh so it's just like a competition who can look the, like the cutest boy in the silky boxers mm-hmm. the goodest boy cutest boy and then they just the like best roll boy. over. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I got I got it. I got it. Okay. You know, well, you know that they say like you should stop saying don't 
beat a dead horse because it perpetuates animal cruelty. Who the fuck is going around beating dead horses? Well, apparently that saying came from somewhere. <laughs> I don't think that somebody's going to be like, you know, I've always liked horses, but since you just said the dead horse saying, I'm going to go find a horse and beat it. Like, I don't think that a, a saying would just make somebody act violently against a fucking horse. Well, according to PETA, it perpetuates animal cruelty. So they suggest you should say instead, don't feed a fed horse. Okay, well, we can say that. I also think that is body shaming, actually. If the horse is hungry, feed it. I think a horse will continue to eat like a goldfish. <laughs> goldfish do pack away a lot of food. I've heard that a goldfish will eat till it explodes, but I don't know if that's a myth. <laughs> Does anybody know anything about feeding horses or fish? Okay, okay, we're all way off the rails. Okay. What the fuck are we talking about? Anyways, if anybody wants to make a calendar of cute dogs in in silky uh, boxer shorts, feel free to mail it to us. That would be wonderful. I'll try to get my dogs in boxer shorts. I (laughs) I don't think they're going to be into it, honestly. Uh, Okay, so arsonists. Now, arsonists are a very interesting group of criminals or a demographic demographic of criminals they are they're in their own category obviously but we thought it would be a good idea to kind of go over what makes an arsonist tick before we actually get into the two cases that we're going to cover and this is just going to be very brief kind of overview super super brief um If you want to learn more about this, you can do the research on your own, obviously. Um, But why set fires? So according to Robert Dispro Jr. from firehouse.com, which is where I got this article. It's a great article. Um, He's a fire investigator. Um, There are six main reasons why arsonists do what they do. So according to this article, which I suggest if you're interested in this, read it. If you're not, it's a really interesting read. Um, so one of the reasons is vandalism, usually set to or around abandoned or vacant buildings, most likely to be a juvenile suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, another reason is excitement. This is a thrill-seeking arsonist. Setting fires for sexual gratification falls under this category. These guys or gals will stay and watch the fire and the first responders, sometimes even videotaping the scene. Um, You can probably, if you look back in the crowd, will see the arsonist somewhere in the crowd. Uh, These arsonists might start the fire for recognition in in multiple ways um maybe it's the security guard who wants to have more recognition so they start a fire to be the hero or maybe they start a fire to get media coverage and they get they like the media coverage Mm -hmm. so that is you know that's a pretty scary arsonist is the excitement because there's it's they're complicated and there's a lot behind fires it's not just fire to these people um the next Reason is revenge, a fire set for a real or perceived injustice by the arsonist. Usually they'll set fire to personal effects like uh, property or possessions of their target. 
The fire starter will most likely use an unsophisticated igniter in these because they are, it's like emotionally driven. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's c- c- spur of the moment a lot of the times or they are driven by emotion so they're not thinking clearly. Um, they'll usually use their own clothing or possessions to start the fire and this is actually one of the most deadly reasons behind arson. So so a revenge arsonist tends to um, kill the most people. Um, this is also very complicated psychology behind revengeful arsonists. Uh, another reason is crime concealment, basically to destroy any evidence of another crime, like a murder or a shooting, um, fire. It just, it, we all know this, it destroys shit. Mm-hmm. So uh, another reason is for profit, it, and that's mostly like uh, monetary gain or possession gain. Um, insurance fraud is a popular uh, profit fire. Um, mm-hmm. or to get out of payments, stuff like that. Apparently, I didn't know this, a lot of people set their cars on fire to get out of their lease. You know, someone, st- you know, someone stole my car and then you find it burned out, like in an, an industrial area. Oh, okay. Okay. You know, and then they can't claim insurance or, you know, yeah. whatever. They get out of paying their payments. Okay, and the last reason that Robert Disbro Jr., Uh, mentioned in his article is extremism and this is another very dangerous form of arson it could you could really rack up the body count for a you know sorry to be crass but um and this is fire set to further political religious or personal agenda Mm -hmm. it could be an individual or a group and it's basically categorized as terrorism yeah that's what i was gonna say sounds like a terrorist Yes. So there is a lot of different reasons um, someone is an arsonist. Uh, pretty scary. The psychology behind arsonists, I think it is... Oh my gosh. Okay, so I'm going to say this without trying to... I think arson is a undercovered... I think arson is undercovered in the true crime genre. Mm-hmm. Maybe because... Um, sometime most of the time there isn't like you know they're not a serial killer they're not you know it's not but it's interesting there's so much psychology just like behind serial killers there's the psychology behind that there's so much psychology behind an arsonist that I find fascinating Um, and I think these two cases that we're gonna talk about it will prove that yeah I think that um, arson is a very complex crime there's a lot behind it, like you said. Yes. When you mentioned um, arson being used to cover up a crime, it reminded me of an episode that we did over summer, our missing mm-hmm. episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though nobody was charged with a murder, we believe that fire was used to cover a crime. Mm-hmm. And that would be arson for the purposes of concealment. Yeah, so if you're interested in that episode, check out our missing episode. Yeah, that was uh, Brooke Farthing on our missing, missing, was it just, it was just titled Missing, right? Yeah, that's what I, that's why I said. Oh, sorry. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a, anyways, um, (laughs) I, okay, so, but you know what, this is a really great article by Robert Disbrow Jr., and, um, 
I just took like the gist of every one of the six categories, um, like the reasons or psychology behind arsonists. Go and read it because it describes, it's so interesting because it describes, um, for example, like a revenge arsonist will most likely start a fire on a bed or a closet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just it it just goes into the psychology and like what to look for and and what kind of classifies them in each of the categories. So it's it's a really cool article. It's informative. We will have a link to that on our shit. Yes, we will. Okay, are you ready to get I'm into ready. it? All right. Yes, I will go first because you said I could. Not <laughs> not because I'm bossy. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so today I'm going to talk about the arsons that took place in Accomack County, Virginia. The arsonists, a couple from this small community. Oh, a couple, huh? Mm-hmm. Interesting. They began this bizarre spree while still in love, but that love has since been tamped out like the last <laughs> embers. Of a once <laughs> raging fire. <laughs> my source. So, uh, sorry, excuse the pun. I can't help myself. My source today is an article called Love and Fire from the Washington Post. The story was by Monica Hess. And the photos, which are great also, are by Bonnie Joe Mount. And we'll post those photos on our social media. Happy Hour Gets Weird Pot on Instagram. Yeah. All right, so uh, first, I think I need to explain Accomack County, Virginia itself, because in this story, I believe this place is actually the main character. Oh, I love stories like this, except mine is the fire, but love stories <laughs> where the where the setting is a character in its, yes. in, in its own right. Oh, my God. Mwah. Okay. So that was a chef's kiss, by the that way. That was a chef's kiss that she did. She didn't just like kiss me. We're, we're not in the same room. Uh, so this is an old area for the United States. It was established in the late 1600s and it's located on a peninsula with the Atlantic Ocean on the right and the Chesapeake Bay on its left. Sounds beautiful. So it is a bit isolated. To get to it from Virginia, you have to take a bridge and then it's connected from Delaware. Yeah, so it's isolated. And it began as a farming community, as most places do. Much later, it would become the site of Tyson and Purdue Chicken Processing, whose plants process millions of chickens a year. I'm sure everybody recognizes the names Tyson and Purdue. The population in 2010 was 33,000, dropping from its height in the early 1900s. And uh, it's about that population today. And... When residents left, they also left behind homes and sometimes businesses. These abandoned buildings and houses oftentimes sat on quiet country roads that went black when the sun set in this small community. Honestly, this small community sounds amazing. It does, and it's one of those places where it's just a bunch of small towns kind of clustered together and, you know, people know everybody it seems like a, a, a nice, um, quiet, kind of small area. Uh, I do think that they had a lot of poverty in the area, though, which I think I think there was an issue with that. Oh, okay. 
As Jim Eichelberger, the mayor of Parksley, which was one of the small towns in this county, as mm-hmm. he put it, they could never run out of abandoned buildings here. So that's how much of the town had, had gone vacant at this time. There must have just been a lack of employment. It's on a peninsula. I mean, yeah, I, I could see how that would happen. Let's get into the arsons. Okay. Why we're all here. The fires began at 10.41 p.m. on November 12, 2012. A woman named Deborah Clark called 911 to report a home across a now-harvested cornfield was on fire. The once stately two-story home, which had long ago been abandoned and now sagged and faded from years of neglect, was burning to the ground. Eight minutes later, a brush fire had been set near a ditch bank. A little more than 24 hours after the first fire was spotted, there were six more. Abandoned, forgotten houses were now the center of everyone's attention. Whoa, shit. That's a a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah. This was the beginning, but just five months later, that number would jump to 76 arsons. Oh my goodness. Virginia State Police sent special agents to examine the properties because this was a small community. They didn't have like a fire arson task force, basically. So Mm -hmm. the Virginia State Mm -hmm. Police um, stepped in. Mm -hmm. Months passed and things kept burning. Houses, shacks, cabins, billboards, piles of tires. What the? Ew. But why? These places weren't insured. They were vacant. A profit. It's not a profit arson. No. And it wasn't, uh, what was the other one? Revenge, because it was all different properties and a lot of them not even owned by anybody, right? How dare you, you stack of tires, the audacity. (laughs) (laughs) The the tire guy was pissed. It's all about the tire guy. (laughs) The police set up a $25,000 reward. A group of community members put up cameras and started their own task force. A list of houses that needed to be watched was compiled so that people knew, like, these houses are on our watch list because mm-hmm. it was primarily, despite the, the pile of tires and a billboard or two, it was primarily <laughs> abandoned houses. houses. Yeah. Okay. Luckily, almost all of the arsons did take place in empty houses where no one would get hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was one exception, however. Oh. A single father dropped his daughters off at their mom's house. He was gone for a mere 25 minutes. And when he returned, someone had stuffed a burning rag under the siding on his house. What the fuck? Fortunately, it was spotted and no one was hurt. But he pretty much felt that he was obviously being watched. Mm-hmm. Because he wasn't gone that long. Mm-hmm. Another time... Someone's detached garage was burned, but Mm. the arsonist had let the chickens out of their coop before he started the fire. Okay. Thoughtful arsonist. Not the worst kind of arsonist. (laughs) Thoughtful arsonist. When it comes to chickens, not single dads. (laughs) Clearly. (sighs) The county was buzzing with theories on who it could be. A commenter on the article that I read, I always like to read the comments at the bottom Mm -hmm. if there are any. It's so fascinating. So a commenter on the article um, who actually lived there 
said one favorite conspiracy theory was that it was a real estate developer, like burning out property so that they could get them at a steal. Mm-hmm. And I can just imagine like all the small town gossip about who they thought mm-hmm. it was. And I love that shit. But I don't think that anyone would have guessed the who or why attached to these crimes. I mean, you have this rumor that it's a real estate developer. Like an outsider. Like, you know, they probably picture this like big city outsider burning up their town to to make a profit. Right. But like who would what? No offense to. I mean, I don't know if you take offense, it's your problem. But to like big real estate developers, you think they're going to let out a chicken coop? Let the chickens free? <laughs> I don't true. think so. I might be stereotyping. They don't give a shit about chickens. I no, know they don't. big city real, real estate agents. <laughs> they don't give a fuck about chickens. Mm-mm. They'll step on a chicken's foot. Mm-hmm. They don't care. They will kick a chicken right straight <laughs> in the ass. In the, in the huevos. <laughs> Okay, where where was I? Where was I? Okay, uh, oh, <laughs> chicken go ahead. chicken and balls. No, that's not <laughs> it. So the last fire was started on April Fool's Day, two thousand thirteen. Local law enforcement officers were tasked with watching one of the dilapidated structures on their list, a house bought for nineteen grand and waiting to be fixed up. So the Mm -hmm. list that I mentioned they'd compiled, they had people watching them, so they were officers Mm -hmm. at this specific location. Mm -hmm. Virginia State Troopers Troy L. Johnson and Willie Burke had been staking out this property. They'd been there for hours. It was around 11 o'clock at night, and they were using night vision goggles and a hunting pop-up tent to hide in the tree line. It kind of sounds fun. Yeah, that sounds exciting, actually, honestly. It is, it is. So the troopers watched as a gold minivan approached the Mm -hmm. house and the van's passenger leapt from the vehicle and ran towards the property. The fire began and the officers raced from their locations. They watched as the suspect ran back to the van and and then sped away. An officer alerted nearby police who easily caught up with the gold van. The arsonist had been caught in the act. Okay, that's exciting. And I feel like just doing research for this episode, I feel like that is how you I think that's how you kind of can catch an arsonist. I think you have to stake out their territory and kind of like they did make a list of abandoned houses mm-hmm. or stake out the territory where the arsonist is working cuz most arsonists will stay in a in a geographical location they are comfortable with. They usually don't travel outside of it. It's kind of rare. And luckily for these people, it wasn't just, I mean, yeah, arsonists, like you said, have like like to be in a specific area. But luckily in this mm-hmm. case, it was also geographically kind of impossible for them to venture out. Mm-hmm. Like they're on a peninsula, they're in a small area, so mm-hmm. it's even more confined. Mm-hmm. These fires seemingly had not one, but two people behind them. Oh my goodness. An engaged couple, Charlie Smith and Tanya Bundick. So, a little about these people. Charlie ran an automotive shop. He was known for having issues with drugs, stealing from relatives, kind of low-level stuff that all had been fueled by a drug addiction. Um, He had 
been in and out of rehab facilities and um, it he hadn't really been able to uh, get over his addiction. Mm-hmm. For a while, he had even been a volunteer firefighter, <laughs> but his addiction got in the way of that too. Mm-hmm. Only when he met Tanya was Charlie able to stay clean. Aww. In fact, on the night of their first date, he flushed two eight balls of cocaine down the toilet. Wow. That's a lot of money. That's $12 million in today's money. Just kidding. I don't know how much coke costs. <laughs> I And this wasn't that long ago. Love you so much. I am willing to flush two eight balls of coke down the toilet for you. First date. First date, love at first sight. Ladies, find you a guy that will flush two eight balls of cocaine down the toilet at mm-hmm. first sight. Mm-hmm. If, if, if it's not, if that doesn't have, it's not love. It's not love. It's not love. <laughs> so Tanya Bundick was a former nurse who was now mainly home with her two children. And she ran a small clothing boutique next to Charlie's automotive shop. Um, One of her sons had a behavioral disorder, and she needed to stay home with him, so she had to quit her nursing job. She told Charlie that she would not date him unless he was clean, because she wasn't going to allow that around her kids. She she did seem like a good mom from from what I read. Uh, The couple had been together for about two years, and although there had been a quick spark between the two, the last year had been strained, or a year or more, hmm. maybe a year and a half. Caring for her children had been really taxing on Tanya. Mm-hmm. And although Charlie had kicked drugs to date Tanya, his mother had died semi-recently. Mm-hmm. And when she died, mm-hmm. Charlie kind of spiraled and started secretly using again. Okay, so he relapsed. Yeah. But the two were now in gate were now engaged and they were planning a wedding which is another stressor because they didn't have like a huge income yeah i well honestly even if you do people think like oh we're getting married it's gonna be if you make it through wedding planning you're gonna make it (laughs) you'll make it through anything (laughs) maybe divorce statistics say you're not (laughs) but wedding planning can be quite stressful yeah um another uh bit of information about their relationship was even though they had only been together two years and were newly engaged which is typically like the happy uh honeymoon honeymoon phase phase, Mm -hmm. they hadn't had sex in months oh okay so charlie had fallen for tanya hard Mm -hmm. but that love had messed with their sex life he had even seen a doctor mm-hmm. who told him that all of his physical issues were actually mental. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just going to use Charlie's words here. He Charlie said, the minute I fell in love, my dick stopped working. Interesting. Wow, that's so, like, pardon the pun, but what a mind fuck. Yeah, it's like he didn't believe that he deserved a good person. I, you know what, Tanya did, you know, smart woman, former nurse, business woman, business owner, single mom, raising two kids. I mean, she does sound like a pretty fantastic catch. Encouraged her boyfriend 
to get off drugs. And I heard that she would uh, dance on the tables sometimes at the bar. I love her. Yep. Sold. Yep. So, yeah, there was a lot going on. Then they started lighting fires. Hmm. Now, this is where the former couple's stories change. They have Hmm. two different sides to the arsons. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. So Charlie claimed that it was Tanya's idea to commit the fires. After the first fire, Tanya was so kind to Charlie, the relationship deepened, and all he wanted to do was to make her happy. According to Charlie, Tanya lit most of the early fires, but after she was almost spotted, he took over. Most of the fires were random, uh, you know, just abandoned houses, what they could get Mm -hmm. to, Mm -hmm. except the one with the single dad. Uh, Okay. That one was actually personal. The single dad was an ex of Tanya's, and Charlie had wanted to set that fire. Okay. Even though Tanya was the mastermind, Charlie wanted to set the fire. They had, like, ran into him in town, and even though they had all been, like, polite to each other, Charlie's like, fuck that guy, and then wanted to light his house oh. on fire. Okay. And remember that fire with the chickens? Mm-hmm. Charlie fucking hated chickens. So Tanya let them out. I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> I'm just fucking okay. with you. I'm, like, super invested in this, and you... are so invested in the chickens. You got me good. You got me good. So Tanya saved the chickens. Charlie wanted them fucking dead. I'm just trying to find a way to make Charlie the bad guy. In the middle of their arson spree, Charlie and Tanya finally had sex after an 18-month dry spell. Oh, 18 months? Yeah. Oh. So that's another little added um, layer to this whole situation. Okay, I I mean, that is, it's complicated. It is complicated. So after the two were arrested, Charlie quickly caved. He said, he admitted to setting the fires. I mean, he was caught red-handed, so I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. what else he could fucking say at that point. Mm -hmm. He said he knew the police interviewing him. He knew the firefighters. He knew most of the community, and he just wanted to be honest. Mm -hmm. Charlie also claimed that he had only really lit the fires because Tanya wanted him to. Mm-hmm. And according to his story, uh, he also claimed that they would light the fire and then run away and never stay and watch it burn, which I also found interesting. Hmm. So Charlie pleaded guilty to 67 counts of arson and one count of conspiracy to commit arson. Now let's get to Tanya's side of the story. Okay. So Tanya had a completely different version of events. She claimed that she didn't know anything about the arsons until the night that they got arrested. Oh, okay. So everything that Charlie said, she denies, right? uh, Okay. I don't know. Continue. She claimed that on the night that they got arrested, they ran to Walmart had gotten into kind of a typical, like, bullshit couples fight. Mm-hmm. And on the way back, Charlie asked if she would let him out so he could walk for a little bit. She did let him out. And then a few minutes later, she swung back around and picked him up. And then the next thing they knew, boom, they were arrested. 
Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Well, not sure that I believe Tanya. So their stories are so different and I just feel like the truth is somewhere in the middle. Well, I was just thinking, okay, it's probably a little bit of Charlie's and a little bit of Tanya. I mean, Tanya's, I feel like, is so, so... Like, she claimed whenever he'd be gone at night that he said he was working. And she Mm. almost thought that he might be having an affair because he wasn't making more money, but he was working extra. And he claimed that they would be out together at night, and then they would light the fires. And then the fire somehow helped their relationship so much to the point that he could finally have sex with her again after not being able to for so long. I think they were both in on it. Well, you're not the only one. (laughs) Initially, after their arrest, Tanya and Charlie remained in contact. Uh, They would, like, write each other little notes and, like, hide them in the jail yard or whatever and find them. It was kind of cute. But soon Tanya became aware of the story that Charlie had told police. Like, Tanya did not realize at first that Charlie had totally implicated her in the fires. She still wanted to marry Charlie when they first got arrested. Once Tanya found out that Charlie had claimed that the fires had, in fact, been pretty much all Tanya's idea, um, <laughs> they, were, they, were, they were done. They were through. So another really kind of crushing thing, I mean... If Tanya, in fact, is innocent, which I guess Mm -hmm. we will never really know the truth, um, Charlie was the star witness against Tanya at the trial. Hmm. So he testified against her. And like I said, he he claimed at the trial what he had said all along, that the fires were only lit to make Tanya happy. And he said that he still loved her and got, like, really choked up about it he said that he just you know wanted them to still be together and Tanya's attorney claimed that Charlie was trying to get her locked up too so that she couldn't find love again as a free woman okay this is so complicated yeah so uh, Tanya's basically saying I didn't know anything about this and Charlie is just trying to you know be possessive of me basically and Charlie's like no I, I would this would have never happened if Tanya didn't want it to happen it's crazy it is crazy because if Tanya wanted Charlie to stop doing drugs he stopped doing drugs mm-hmm. I mean Tanya might be one of those people who looks good on paper but she's actually a Dexter she's not as cool as a Dexter but yeah secret life Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I guess we will never really know the truth behind the arsons and the relationship that fueled them. Unless Tanya mm-hmm. writes a book from prison. Um, that, that A tell-all where she admits to it, I guess I should say. As the trial progressed, Tanya ended up changing her plea from not guilty to an Alford plea. Which is basically, mm-hmm. for those who don't know, it's pleading guilty without admitting you actually committed the crime. And people do this when they know their trial is not going in their favor. Mm-hmm. In 2014, Tanya Bundick was sentenced to 10 years for two of the arsons. The 60 counts of arson were originally not all lumped together in one trial. Then, in 2015, Tanya made a deal on the remaining arson cases and will end up serving around 20 years in prison. Charles Smith was sentenced to 15 years in prison for his role in the arsons. If you would like to learn more about Tanya, Charles, Arson, and the County of Accomac 
you should read the book American Fire, also by Monica Hess, who is the author of the article that I read. I read this book a couple of years ago, actually, so when we decided to do an arson episode, I knew the case that I was going to cover. It's a great mm. book. You should check it out. I might have to check it out. I, Yeah, that's a hard one to decide because, you know, why would she put herself in a position to get the book thrown at her when she could just admit it and get it over with? I don't know. Maybe she thought I, that but, she could blame Charlie because he was kind of like the town trump, like the, the town fuck mm-hmm. up. She doubled down. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my goodness. That is a fascinating case. Thank you. Um, you did such a good job, and it's so interesting. And I am going to read that book. All right. I'm ready for yours. I'm excited. Okay. Are you ready? Because this guy is a sicko. <laughs> still ready. Now kind of okay. scared, but still ready. So my arson case is the case of Thomas Sweat. He was and is still one of the most prolific arsonists in the United States, if not the most prolific. Do you know who Thomas Sweat is? Have you ever heard of him? Um, I don't think so. Maybe if I, maybe once you get into it, it will ring a bell. Maybe. Okay. He set fires for 30 years in Washington, D.C. Oh my God. And surrounding areas. Actually, over 350 fires. Holy shit. Closer to 400. And he uh, confirmed killed two elderly women who couldn't get out in time. But mm-hmm. he's responsible for more deaths that he wasn't charged for. So I couldn't find much on his childhood or background other than he... Uh, said that he felt like an odd ball within his own family. Um, He liked to play house um, as Mrs. Lady. Mm -hmm. While his brothers preferred sports, he preferred dolls over cars. Not weird in my opinion, Mm -hmm. but this this was the 60s. So did he set the houses on fire when he played house? (laughs) No. Okay. He would build houses in um, a wooded area near their house, and then. He would have his brothers call him Mrs. Lady and have them try to break into the house that he built. That's oh, okay. That's strange. That's so he's <laughs> yeah he's playing home invasion. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, playing house isn't strange, but home and in- <laughs> playing home invasion is is strange. Yeah. So he seemed to have a pretty normal childhood as far as being raised. Um, his parents were, you know, regular religious work you know just regular um however as far back as he could remember sweat had a thing for feet big feet and men with big feet also men's shoes dress shoes work shoes boots um like shiny dress shoes Mm -hmm. He also was attracted by a unique gait or walk. Uh, A good example of this is a pigeon-toed walk. If he saw a man walking, um, toes turned in. I know pigeon-toed. I don't know. I only know it as pigeon-toed, and that's what he said in one of his letters. Mm -hmm. Um, That really rang his bell. That's so random. Mm -hmm. He called it, if I saw a man with a funky walk, 
I was attracted to him. And then he went on to say, for example, Pigeon Toad. I feel like Ronald McDonald would have really lit his fire, as the Mm -hmm. saying goes, with those big old (laughs) feet. He would... No, this is where it gets really kind of fucked up and weird. He would sneak around the outside of his childhood home when he was a kid, and he would peep into his dad's bedroom window, and he would masturbate while watching his dad read the paper with his shooed feet reclined up in the air. That's fucking disgusting because that's his dad. Yeah, and he would masturbate focusing on his dad's shoes. Like, he could have literally found any magazine with somebody with shoes on why his own dad that's fucking not okay with me he would also steal his uncle's shoes and sleep with them on his pillow so he could smell the odor all night i cannot put into words how much i hate this guy already i told you he's he's pretty fucked up fucking a this guy makes my people look like romeo and juliet (laughs) (laughs) i'm like oh wow it was romantic Tanya and Charlie, Nobody romantic. Got hurt. They kept chicken. Fucking safe. Thomas Swed is like jacking off to his dad's shoes. Um, Thomas said he felt like he never measured up to anyone in his family because he didn't. Because he masturbated to his dad's feet and slept with his uncle's shoes. He was correct. Yes. Um, he applied uh, to be in the Marines in the seventies, but couldn't. He passed the um mental exam but he could not pass the physical exam and was rejected by the marines and this rejection seemed to fuel his deep sense of failure throughout his life thank god they rejected him well i don't know Uh, honestly i don't know because as we get further into this i thought to myself what if he would have made it into the marines could all of this have ended differently so Thomas worked at a cook for Washing- in Washington, D.C. at a KFC restaurant for 12 years. He worked at various fast food restaurants before that, but that was his longest running job. Coworkers described him as neat and clean, friendly, dedicated, and reliable. In fact, he worked his way up from cook to regional manager. But Thomas described himself as being two people. The person he was at work. The guy who liked interior design and home renovations, a friendly neighbor in his apartment building. Um, but he said this side of himself or this certain person within himself felt powerless a lot and like a failure and that he was failing at life. And then there was his other self or his other side, the arsonist with the compulsion to burn. And this side of himself felt powerful. I just keep thinking it's like the normal dude and then the shoe sniffer. Like those are his two sides. <laughs> I can't this guy, get past it. He seriously was odd. Odd. Um, January 1985, Thomas left work at the Ray Rogers fast food restaurant and headed home on foot. Along the way, he passed what he thought was a very attractive man. Drawn by a compulsion to meet the man, he changed course and followed him. He followed the man home, and as the man went inside his house, Thomas felt the need to see him again. The only way he thought he could see him again was fire. Thomas rushed home, changed out of his work uniform, grabbed a few supplies, and borrowed his sister's car and drove back to the man's house. Using a jug filled with gas, Thomas poured gas under the front door, blocked the doorstep with a towel, and then lit it. 
Thomas waited across the street in his sister's car as the fire started to grow in the front entryway. And then there was movement within the house. At that point, Thomas drove around the block, and as he passed the house again, preparing to park, the man was on the porch in nothing but his underwear, and someone was yelling from the basement window for help. Thomas got his wish. He was able to see the man again. Fire worked. The two boys in the basement, the two girls upstairs, and the man, whose name was Ray Pickott, were able to escape the fire. Unfortunately, Ray's wife, Bessie Mae Duncan, didn't make it out. <gasps> mm-hmm. Ray was badly burned on over 60% of his body oh and, suffered, mm-hmm, and suffered smoke inhalation. He actually died a few le- weeks later from his injuries. Oh, no. Thomas drove away a little while after the firefighters arrived, and he masturbated on the drive home. The fire was classified as an accident from a lit cigarette dropped in bedding. Wait, wasn't, didn't he lock the door with like... This is 1985, and I just think, I just... You know, the one of the boys in the basement, his name was Rodney, mm-hmm. and he ended up being a NYPD officer, and he was frustrated his entire life because essentially both of his parents died in this fire, mm-hmm. and nobody smoked in the house. What the fuck? You can always tell the way a fire starts because it looks different at its origin point than everywhere else. This, none of this makes sense. Yeah, I, I don't know if... This was when... Thomas Sweat started first started I mean he had been doing it off and on for I would say for most of his life probably from his adolescence there's not much about his before this um and you'll find out why uh but I I I don't know maybe the investigator was inexperienced I'm not sure but it Rodney the son who who lost his parents in this fire um it wasn't until later that he was vindicated because they didn't find out until later that this fire was actually set by Thomas Sweat. Wow. Yeah, I'll, we'll talk about that at the end. Um, in February, so between 1985 when this fire happened and um, 2005, which is when Sweat was ca- uh, taken into custody, Jesus. He, he terrorized, terrorized. D.C. and the and the surrounding suburbs. Mm-hmm. February 2002, 93-year-old Annie Brown was trapped inside her home as it burned. She later died from smoke inhalation. Thomas Sweat had set her house ablaze. In June 2003, 85-year-old Lou Edna Jones was found in her home by firefighters, unconscious from smoke inhalation. She was pronounced dead later at the hospital. Thomas Sweat had seen her grandson walking, was attracted to him, followed him to Lou Edna's home, and set the house on fire. Everyone was able to escape except for poor Lou Edna, who was considered the mother of the whole neighborhood. So he was awful. He's a monster. So these are just the fires that led to human death. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, sweat lit fires for uh, for other reasons too he saw a house he wanted to buy he would burn it what the fuck Some, that doesn't even make sense it, somehow burning the house made him feel like he owned it like that's what his way of claiming people or property was to burn it 
Yes. Or he said it was kind of like a prophecy that if he burned it, he would own something like it. Uh, If a bike was resting on a porch that caught his eye, he would burn the house, therefore taking ownership of the bike he liked. This is such a bizarre train of thought for me. Seriously. If the cars in the driveway intrigued him, consider the house burned. The fuck? He... Yeah, and he moved from neighborhood to neighborhood when he got bored of lighting fires. So he would burn a bunch of fires in a neighborhood, he would get bored and move to another neighborhood. And that's, for a long time, why arson investigators that that were in charge of this case couldn't figure out because they, they couldn't understand why he was moving neighborhoods. And they probably didn't understand his motivation because it's so bizarre. They didn't. Nobody's gonna, I mean... I guess now people would, but I'm sure when it first started, nobody's thinking, well, nice bike. That's probably why I burned that house down. Exactly. And they, it was totally, that's what puzzled them because every house seemed random. They were all different. They were all different material, different neighborhoods, different looks. Everything seemed random. I'm surprised that more people, there wasn't more loss of life. I'm surprised because it's in a city. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he would light fires in the early morning hours when people were sleeping. He wasn't doing abandoned structures at all. I mean, I'm really sorry that the people that died did die, but I'm honestly surprised there weren't more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, one time, he got a bad haircut from a barbershop in his neighborhood, and he burned the barbershop down. Maybe he should have lit his own hair on fire. <laughs> then he could have owned nice hair in his own mind. <laughs> Other times, he started a fire to watch the attractive barbers run to safety. Wait, what? I thought you were going to say the attractive firefighters, but then you said barbers and it threw me for a loop. Yes. Yeah, he had an attraction to barb. He had many, many, many fetishes. Like, many. Did he ever light a shoe store on fire? No. Yeah, actually, probably. He burned markets. He burned homes. he He burned all kinds of shit. You would think he would just light shoe stores on fire. Honestly. Like Al Bundy was right up his alley. <laughs> yes. When he was feeling powerless or like a failure, he would set something on fire to feel powerful or in control. Or if he was wronged or if he saw something that he liked, he would burn it. I mean, it, it was – he was like all – I would classify him as an excitement arson. Mm-hmm. Um, but also a revenge arson. He's like anything. He's like, I like you, fire. I stubbed mm-hmm. my toe. Fire. Fire. Mm-hmm. I got a haircut. Fire. <laughs> yes. Honestly. And that, I think that's why he was able to get away with it for 30 years because he was the only – he he is was literally the only one who knew the motive. And it was random. Totally random. Even he said in some of his letters from prison – I'll get into that. But he said um, – there was a lot of things he did. He could not explain the why. He just couldn't. He didn't even know why he did it. He just did it. He had a compulsion to do things. And he just didn't even know why. Why am I picturing him with the bowl cut, but the bowl cut's very high up? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know why. That's how I'm picturing him. Imagine. Um, oh, gosh. I'll show you a picture. Who would play him in a movie? Um... Jamie Foxx, but with, like, gray hair. Like, gray Einstein hair. What? Jamie Foxx is so hot. 
Well, I mean, so is Charlize Theron, but she played uh, Eileen Warnos. That's true. That's true. Oh, I love Jamie Foxx, actually. He's like one of my faves. Okay, okay. Oh they should make this movie then. Yeah, he's like a triple threat, honestly. Okay. Jamie Foxx, um, not this guy. Jamie Foxx, not fucking Thomas Sweat. He's like a triple fucking... <laughs> a triple turd? <laughs> yes. Okay, so Sweat terrorized DC for 20 years, if not more. And there was a tax task force formed in his, I guess you could say, honor. The ATF was on the case, but they were always just a few minutes behind Sweat. Mm-hmm. They st- they started staking out certain neighborhoods, and when they would get a call, they would um, rush there, but he was always gone with no trace. So along with his foot fetish, Sweat had a fetish for men in uniform. Sometimes he would report fake fires in his neighborhood and wait for the firemen to arrive and record them. Honestly, the uniform thing is the only normal thing about him. <laughs> I actually I was thinking about this and I was when I was writing this I was like do I have a thing for uniforms I don't I don't I don't have a thing for uniforms um but I do have a soft spot for construction workers that's basically a uniform yeah but like I don't know you know like a uniform doesn't really do it for me Meh. but construction worker if you're dirty and, and you're sweaty. You want to sniff their shoes? Get the fuck yeah. out of here. I want to sniff your tool belt. <laughs> <laughs> I want to sit on your hard hat. <laughs> that would be actually a very tricky maneuver to pull off. <laughs> so he would record the firemen coming to this fake fire that he reported, and then he would use the video to masturbate. He also liked men who worked at the bus depot because they also wore a uniform. He would record their shoes walking on the bus. He would ride the bus and record them. Sweat would also park in the bus depot parking lot where the employees parked and wait for an attractive man in a bus depot uniform to leave his car. And then he would set that car on fire. Jesus. He particularly liked setting muscle cars on fire. Because they're sexy. (laughs) I, he did. He called them sexy, like a sexy car. He said my favorite was to set a sexy car on fire. They are sexy cars. I can actually see that link. Yeah, and he there was a Mustang, a white Ford Mustang one time he set on fire, and he really, it like really got him going. They're like phallic or something in his mind. Yeah. Police were actually kind of a, uh, a juxtaposition for Sweat. He was attracted to them but also resented them for the power that they had. He resented them for the power that he said they got only by carrying a badge and a gun. They weren't actually powerful themselves. Mm-hmm. The uniform aroused him, but also made him feel more powerless. Uh, talk about complicated. He set multiple police cars on fire over the years, like multiple cruisers. That's fucking ballsy. <laughs> Seriously. He would set fires hoping to spark a press conference with high-ranking firemen in uniform mm-hmm. um, so he could masturbate to the news coverage. Um, uh, and eventually it would be Sweat's fetish for a man in uniform that would lead to his capture. Okay. Most of the time, Sweat used his own clothes to start the fire. He would fill a jug partially full of gasoline and stuff a piece of clothing, usually his own, in the opening, then lighting it on fire. Mm. So... 
what I found out that I didn't know is gasoline is flammable, but not the liquid. It's the vapors that are flammable. So hmm. what would happen is, it, say a milk jug, he used a milk jug or a juice jug. So stuffing a piece of clothing in a small opening like that only allowed, didn't allow very many vapors to seep out. Mm-hmm. So the clothing would light on fire and it would slowly get to the opening, which would give him about a 20 minute uh, a window uh, to like get out of window. there. Mm-hmm. Oh, that, then, I didn't know any of that either. Yeah, so once the clothing got close to the jug, the fire on the clothing would start to melt the plastic, releasing the vapors, and then it would just, you know, just the vapors would leak out and then burst into flames, and then the house would catch on fire or whatever would catch on fire. Oh, wow. I thought that was interesting. I didn't know. Um, So because he used his own clothing, a a few times police were able to extract DNA from the igniter. Yeah, that's so dumb. Um, Why didn't he grab, mm -hmm. like a bunch of towels at the store and save them and not that's weird yeah so it was like um trace dna you know from like skin cells Mm -hmm. or yeah something like that um and one time three men came home to find a strange man sitting on their porch with a bag and if this was they were college kids i think and it was like four three in the morning so they were coming home from partying and they basically like what the fuck are you doing here, weirdo? And he's like, oh, I thought this was the wrong house. And he took off, but he left the bag there. And that had an igniter. It had a jug with gasoline and clothing. But in that bag also had one of his hairs. That's creepy. I know. So they had a couple samples of DNA and also a hair with DNA from their arsonist. All they needed was a name and a suspect to be able to match it to. Mm-hmm. And that came from an unexpected source. Cameras at the local marine recruiter's office. Mm-hmm. One of Sweat's favorite pastimes was parking at the marine's recruitment office to watch and videotape marines entering and exiting the building. He would get there early before it opened and he would sit in his car and wait till marine recruiters pulled into the parking lot got out of their car in uniform and went into the building and he would record them and then use it for uh, sexual purposes later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also what he did is he would wait till everybody left for the day and sometimes the Marine recruiters would leave like a government car there that they had driven and a lot of the times they left it unlocked and he would break into the unlocked cars in the parking lot which had uniforms for recruits uh, laminates badges hats all kinds of like stuff for marine recruitments Mm -hmm. uh, recruits i mean and he would steal that stuff and then he would put together an entire uniform and then walk around his apartment in the uniform stolen valor yes well it's very like buffalo bill from silence of the lambs vibes like except for not a skin suit just an actual suit just an actual suit but it was just like he would do stuff around the house in this uniform um which i think is just so i mean it's not that strange if you're like benign if you're not a, a, a insane arsonist you know like you have like the nurse fetish and you have the uniform fetish Mm -hmm. or whatever but this guy is just it's weird when it's him doing it and it's just another level of just like Uh, another layer to his 
Yes. His bizarre behavior. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just weird. He would also, not only would he steal stuff from the cars, but he would set them on fire. Mm-hmm. Um, if a, if a Marine he found attractive left the vehicle there, he would set it on fire. So going off a hunch, the task force checked surveillance, surveillance cameras and they captured sweat driving to and from the arson scenes at the Marine office. He, um, even burned down a recruitment office once. Uh, the entire office. <laughs> um, so they interviewed him. They got his DNA. Um, he had, no, here is what's interesting. Okay, so he, at, same with the pillow arsonist, or I believe his last name was, mm-hmm. who was um, pretty much, he's probably the most infamous arsonist that I think everybody would kind of know. Um, He was the firefighter who would set fires Mm -hmm. using a pillow. Mm -hmm. Um, He wrote a manifesto, and that's how they kind of tied him to all the arsons uh, beyond circumstantial evidence. Well, Sweat also wrote, um, he called it a fire diary or an arson diary. And he, um, after he was brought brought in, um, for questioning and they took his DNA, he went home and destroyed that fire journal. So how did they know that he had it? Um, he admitted to it later. He, he had, he, yeah. So a few days later, the DNA came back. Man, it I matched. wish they still and had that. That that was my point is I wish they still had that because there would be some sick shit in there. I know it. Um, Which is fascinating to me because I guess at the end of the day, yeah, I'm and, a sicko. And people can learn so much from that kind of shit. To help them mm-hmm. catch future arsonists. Mm-hmm. So he um, eventually confessed. He confessed to close to 400 fires. Um, he confessed to um, the murder of Lou Edna and Annie Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, they showed him a picture of the burned buildings, of the, the burned residents. Mm-hmm. And he said, yes, I did that. He remembered every single fire down to the T. That's great. Every single one he remembered. Um he was given a life sentence without parole for various arson related charges, uh first degree murder and second degree murder for Annie Brown and Lou Edna. However, they did not connect him to Roy Pickett mm-hmm. and Bessie May until much later so he has never been charged or convicted of those um he is serving his sentence at the federal correctional institution in Terre Haute Indiana Mm -hmm. which is supposedly a pretty pretty tough prison that is where Timothy McVeigh was put to death oh wow Mm -hmm. so he used all of his uh, videos he made of the men in uniform around DC for his personal spank bank for lack of better terms um he said that he became obsessed with the making of recording men in uniform and men walking around he became obsessed and he said he would have masturbated hundreds of times a day if he could have jesus Uh, yeah um and he would continuously when he left a scene masturbate on the way home in the car which just fyi don't fucking masturbate while you drive yeah no that's not safe Mm -mm, not at all so that 
is the really fucked up case of Thomas Sweat, probably the most prolific and creepiest arsonist in the United States. Um, now, here's the interesting part. We didn't know Sweat's motive uh, when they, in 2005, when all of this broke open and they've done multiple ID shows on it. Mm-hmm. They've had uh, forensic files on it. Mm-hmm. But if you go back and watch those, I didn't watch the forensic files, but they don't give a motive for the fires and the police never released, released a motive. The ATF never released a motive. Nobody knew a motive until a former firefighter who worked on the case and a journalist separately started writing letters to sweat in prison. And then he wrote back, they corresponded, uh, both of them separately. And in fact, the source for my article or for my part of this episode is uh, from that journalist and it's called Letters from an Arsonist by Dave Jamison. He got sweat to give a motive for these fires. So I found out in my research that in his guilty plea deal, he would plead guilty if the police never released a motive to the public. Because he was embarrassed that all he did was jack off and sniff shoes? I, I, I'm, that's the thing I'm guessing, but he also f- freely gave it to the firefighter and the journalist in letters. So I don't really know huh. why he, that was part of his plea. Yeah. But no, if you go back and watch all of the ID uh-huh. and the forensic files, they do not give a motive. They, he gave the motive. He said what was okay to give as a motive is he was hearing voices and he was feeling a compulsion. But he didn't want the sexual aspect of his crimes to be widely known. Mm-mm. Maybe because he was ashamed. Like, yeah, maybe. For relatives or whomever um, to know. Mm-hmm. I mean, and he expressed um, remorse for the, well... I don't know. In in the article, the one letters from an arsonist is a fantastic article. I, I'll link it in the description as always. It is a great, it's a fascinating read. Um, he felt sorry for the deaths of uh, Lou Edna and Annie Brown, but he also had the air of, well, they were just kind of collateral damage to my fantasy. Like he, he, he didn't feel that bad because it wasn't his intention to kill anybody. Right. He was like, well, I'm sorry they died, but they got caught up in my fantasy that I was creating. So it's just, I mean, he didn't say those words, but. That was the way he acted. Yeah. That was the impression that the um, journalists got, that they were, he felt bad, but only to a point where like, he was sorry they were collateral damage. Um, And the book is called Thomas Sweat Inside the Mind of DC's Most Notorious Arsonist by Jonathan Reif. And Jonathan Reif is the ex-firefighter. I want to read it. He, um, I'm going to read it. And he said he corresponded with Sweat for a very long time um, until he had to cut off communication because it came to a point where he felt that Sweat was um, uh, acting like they were in a relationship Mm-hmm. And he said that Sweat's attention was fixated on him in a way that was uh, weird. 
Yeah. So he had to cut off all communication. But Sweat also um, confessed his motive to Jonathan Riff. Rife. Excuse me. Fascinating. Um, yeah. And that's that's Thomas Sweat. And I honestly, I think that we, you know, we know or the pillow arsonist because he was, he wrote that manifesto mm-hmm. about how the, um, the sexual aspect to fires. And I think that is, um, you know, part of those things that draw people in because it's so bizarre. And I think because they didn't ever talk about Thomas Sweat's motives. Mm-hmm. I think he kind of just faded away as, um, you know, a serial arsonist that just, you know, wasn't fascinating. I know that sounds like really fucked up to say, but I mean, when it comes to true crime, you know, the gorier, the, the weirder, you know, people really like the really strange cases and i feel like because they didn't release how strange his motives were yeah i think a lot of a lot of people didn't realize how like fucked up he really was i totally get what you're saying like if they would have talked about the underlying sexual Mm -hmm. obsession that this man man Mm -hmm. had as an arsonist i think that you're right Mm -hmm. i think that more true crime coverage of this case would have happened Mm-hmm. I, I I had never heard of him. I didn't even know he committed over 400 fires during a 30-year span in D.C. I feel like I That's might have watched something huge. about him, but definitely had no details like this. Yeah, so it, it's very bizarre. It's very bizarre. He was very troubled. Um, and now you see, like, had he maybe been able to channel that energy into being a marine maybe his life would have turned out differently um, i i mean because there's a lot of people with foot fetishes that practice consensually and don't do i don't think the marine stuff. corps would have been the the thing to save him <laughs> he was very everyone described him as meticulously neat even one of the um Oh, let's see. One of the uh, undercover eight, they surveilled him for a while before they actually arrested him. And one of the other undercover agents watched him at work and they said he went to work and then he came out. And before he came to his, went to his car, he scoured the sidewalk in front of the restaurant, cleaning off old pieces of gum between the cracks. Like he was just very meticulous he lived in an apartment building that his sister owned and he renovated each and every one of the apartments but he also was very meticulous about the yard work he did all the yard work and it was very meticulous and his workspace frying chicken at kfc was uniquely meticulous according to his co-workers his workspace was always clean i i just think he had a lot going on i think there was you know, unfortunately, who he was as a person and uh, the the time period he was born, I think his um, sexuality wasn't super accepted, sadly. And um, just obviously he was attracted to men. Um, so I think being gay in the 60s or being gay and growing up in the family that he did, I think, sadly, that's why he felt like, you know, the odd guy out and, and problems just kind of stemmed from that. Yeah, I I can see that. I don't think the Marine Corps would have helped him, but I do think maybe therapy would have helped him. <laughs> I, You know what? You're right. That's a good point. If you are feeling 
uh, strange. Don't join the Marine Corps. Find a therapist. Well, you did. That's great. That's better advice. That's great advice. (laughs) Uh, You did a great job. This was a super fascinating case. I'm so happy you covered it. I know. I when I the more and more I got into it, and I was just like, "What the hell? Yeah. What the? He did a lot of very strange things. Like I didn't even cover like half the strange things he did that didn't involve arson. He just was very strange. Sounds like it. Ooh, I'm excited to read this book. Me too. Okay, well, I guess that wraps up our arsons for the day. I definitely think we should uh, do more arsons in the future. And by do more, mm-hmm. I mean talk about them, not commit arson. <laughs> also, uh, it's a bit unfortunate, um, your story, just in that I wanted to end this by saying Happy Veterans Day. And now I feel like that's uh, a weird story to tell before me saying Happy Veterans Day. But ha- well, Happy Veterans Day to all the vets out there. <laughs> Thank you for your service. We we endlessly appreciate you and the sacrifices that you've made for our country. Um, I personally, my mom is a veteran. Um, so Veterans Day and veterans are near and dear to my heart. My husband is a veteran, so I'll do my part to celebrate him later tonight. <laughs> for your country. <laughs> it's for your country, madame. <laughs> um. But uh, yes, happy Veterans Day. Thank you for your service. We we could not say enough thank yous. Um, I I think one thing that we can take away is men and women do look nice in uniform. That's the takeaway. That is the takeaway. Um, all right. Well, on that note, love yourself. Lock your doors. And light some sage. Cheers to that. Cheers to that. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for listening. We did it. <laughs> <laughs>